Welcome back to Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into anything related to lake sediments and paleolimnology. As always, we are your hosts. My name is Adam Jaziorski, and I'm here with my good friend, Josh Steenpunk. Hello there, my friend. Oh, I'm glad I didn't have to do that this week. It was, it was, uh, it's stressful to start off the whole, the whole show. Ah, uh, well. You do such a good job at it, so <laughs> let's leave it there. Yeah, no, just a slight change of pace and retor- returning back to it, but. Um, yeah, thrown back to last week, we began to explore some conceptual rabbit holes, beginning of a new arc, looking at the question of what exactly is being reconstructed in a paleolimnological reconstruction. And I'm not sure we really answered any question, specific question regarding the matching of paleo and modern data, but um, did look into the various advantages and disadvantages of linking those data types, and it's definitely complicated. Yep. And then we went on and looked at a whole bunch of different archives. We totally left lakes for an episode and talked about archives that are in arid regions and also archives that are the remains of organisms, trees, corals, all of those different things. I've talked As I listened to it, we talked about poop quite a bit, uh, which was fun and a little silly, but it's I think really fun. interesting. And uh, and yeah, so it, it's time to continue on into this rabbit hole. I actually am really enjoying this arc. So uh, yeah. what do we got on the docket? So the plan today is to expand our horizons even further and completely, well, not quite completely, but leave lake sediments behind. Uh, Again? For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We kind of always have to, well... The nature of this arc is um, if you're going further and further down a rabbit hole, sometimes you get away from the core question. Um, um, But uh, today's episode is going to be looking at biological pollution, a.k.a. invasive species, a.k.a. exotic species, a.k.a. alien invasions. And whether all those things are the same or not and uh, where they all fit together and, and some just general introduction to what it is we're talking about with invasive species. And then I, th- I think we definitely can find some paleolimnology examples or you, examples where paleolimnology has informed the discussion, the study of invasive species, because they are really an important part uh, globally in every environment, but in an aquatic environment, in a lake environment, there's a lot of really good examples of uh, invasions that have occurred way back in the distant past up to more recent things. Yeah. And I thought this fit really well into like the whole conceptual rabbit hole idea because on a very superficial level, like the concept of invasive species is incredibly widespread on like a general public knowledge. Uh, You know, like you doing any sort of boating in like the South Central Ontario area, you're going to run into signs of like, stop the spread of things like bithotrephes and zebra mussels and a sort of macrophytes at all sorts of boat launches and it it's huge for fish in in for anglers so people associated with water there's a lot of knowledge about uh, this threat yeah for sure and then so on some level it's really simple something that is not supposed to be there but then you start scratching and digging a little bit more and like the definition of what is an invasive 
uh, kind of gets a little bit interesting. The um, global nature of the problem, because by default, the lens is to think of things invading our space, let's say, or our regions, but it's multi-directional. So Canadian uh, organisms have invaded other parts of the world and sure. the yeah. whole aspect of, yeah, identifying and, you know, things that were thought to be invasive might not actually be invasive. It may be, have just been rare. And so I think it's a, a pretty cool topic when you start really digging into it. Agreed. Let's go. All right. So I guess kicking off, got to kind of define some terms. And I guess the simplest one is basically introduced species. So that'd be any species that is living outside its native distribution range that has arrived there through direct or indirect activity. And so basically, in other words, something has been transported outside of its natural range by humans, either directly or indirectly. And the key thing here is introduced species are different from invasives because the vast majority of introduced species we don't care about. Um, on the one hand, there is lots of failed introductions. So if somehow accidentally a polar bear got transported from the Arctic into Death Valley, California, it wouldn't be a problem for very long because um, it just would be too far in an environment for it to persist and also it'd be on its own. Um, so you're not going to have a long-term problem there. Um, however, and, yeah, and, and many of them are so beneficial. Like there's so many organisms that have been moved for very specific reasons. If I go and look at my front garden, take all the snow off, I don't think any, we have one native species in the front garden of our house that I'm aware of. All the others are, uh, primarily Japanese varieties and, and that's, they've been brought over, they've been bred they've been changed over long time periods and uh they fill a, a, a niche they fill a role that that humans intended them to play and that is can be quite complimentary some of those have the potential to be invasive not in our garden but some of those like ornamental taxa some of those taxa can become invasive but they're not necessarily so when they're introduced yeah and so when that transition occurs from being an introduced organism to an invasive organism is when, you know, they take root, uh, the population increases to, and becomes self-sustaining to the point that it is harming the local environment in some way, shape or form. And that's when the term invasive, and I think exotic is like an older version of the same term, but at that point, um, yeah, and that, at that point, when there's been some sort of ecological harm, uh, is when you're talking about invasive organisms. Yeah, and some of that may may be inherent to the nature of the organism. Some species just don't produce uh, propagules in huge numbers. They may not be as adaptable to a wide range of conditions, like you said about polar bears and in any environment, really. Uh, so it, it may be biologically related to the nature of that organism. What uh, level of the environment it, it plays? Is it more of a weedy kind of taxa where you would expect those kind of traits that make it really likely to be escape uh, prone? So it's important to keep in mind the nature of that as well as planning for 
the likelihood of invasion, which is, we're not really thinking about. There's a lot less intentional movement of taxa now as we've identified this problem, but also uh, uh, thinking of those that are already introduced. Yeah. And a key thing to contrast early in the discussion is this is completely separate from species that are present in low numbers that are responding to a potential disturbance. So things like uh, ragweed kind of exploding in numbers after tilling of the land, clearing and tilling the land, uh, things like fireweed that uh, responds to and um, like forest fires and that opening up colonization and a big burst in numbers. Um, but the key thing is they were always there. They're just there in low numbers and conditions changed to become more favorable for them over time. But that's not the same thing as invasions. And then on, t on top of that, again, making it even more complex is the whole concept of naturalized species, like s invaders that have been here so long that they've become fully integrated within the um, new ecosystem. And so again, going back to the garden kind of uh, metaphor would be dandelions. Um, for those that might not know, um, you know, they were brought over on purpose um, a couple hundred years ago and are now just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Or earthworms. Like we think of them as this really important part of our soil environment. There are no native earthworms like that we have here. There are invaders they're, they're not native species um, in, in this area. So, but, but who would, what, you're not going to stamp them out in your garden. They have a really valuable role to play. Uh, there's all sorts of different examples like that. You could come up with, you could just list them off and, and have a whole episode listing off these non-native introduced species that have become naturalized. They're just part of our environmental context and, uh, and, and they behave like native species because you know the the environment around them has adapted to their presence uh, dandelions you get this bloom of them you know when the conditions are right in the spring before the other organisms have come up and and then they they peter off as non-native grasses primarily that we have on our lawns but in in open fields they would be replaced by taller uh, native wildflowers that just take a little longer to get going but once they get going are able to compete and that's very different from something new something novel to the ecosystem that is really um likely to really increase in numbers but also a lot of times is going to be modifying the environment itself in order to make it more favorable for its continued existence and that's something that a lot of like really problematic species uh become really invasive tend to do yeah all right, so going back to invasives and the potential harm, there's a wide variety of forms that harm can take. Um, so we can talk about environmental harm, uh, social harm, economic harm, even human health harm. Like, uh, again, going back to gardens on an individual level, if you have giant hogweed growing in your garden, that could be quite horrible for you on an individual level um, because its sap is a phytotoxin which takes away your crazy, skin's crazy. ability to block uh uv uh radiation so all of a sudden you're doing very rapid damage to your tissues just being in sunlight 
can go blind. And that would be just one, one example of uh, a very, I guess, acute harm caused by an invasive. Or what, what are those in North America? We Sorry, uh, those um, giant hornets that are have been found on the West Coast. Oh, the, ja- the Japanese. The, uh, the massive Japanese. things. Like yep. They're huge. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be stung by one of those invasors. And, and they have implications beyond the, that, like human health perspective for colonies of, of uh, native uh, oh, wiping out wiping out the uh, yeah um, but individually do I get bit by one of them no thank you no thank you and stung by one of them I know they don't bite <laughs> I have a PhD in biology I promise <laughs> we're outside of our lane here um, yeah, big time. but yeah so uh, I've got invaders uh, invaders are present all over the world and in our region of uh, Eastern Canada, uh, some of the more famous ones, uh, <clears throat> from some of the famous aquatic ones would include zebra mussels, Asian carp, and the spiny water flea, uh, Bithotrephes, which is a cladocerin. And they come here through uh, differing invasion routes. Uh, the aquatic ones, like a big um, factor of their, I guess, introductions um is through the ballast water of um uh cross oceanic shipping routes uh coming up through the saint lawrence and just ballast water that was picked up on the other side of the world being released into the great lakes wouldn't be a uh, vector for some of these introductions and um i guess when you go down the list and you see things like about dandelions um with trephies, zebra mussels. Um, one key thing that comes up again, they're usually from here, like the inv- a lot of the invaders that we experience here are coming from, um, I don't even know how to properly pronounce the Caucasus. Caucasus. Ca- yep. The Caucasus region of Russia. And in Caspian many ways, because it's yep. a uh, similar environment. So in terms of the temperate nature, again, you know, you're not going to have like, desert animals invading us in, in large numbers. Um, and so just coming from a side, other side of the world, but similar general ecological conditions and no natural predators um, and to potentially keep them in check and allows their populations to explode. Yeah, absolutely. And the ballast water one, not to harp on specific modes of introduction particularly but it just brought to mind there was a, a recent news article paper it came out just a few days ago from when we recorded this um saying that this is one of those examples kind of thinking ahead um where there's been a really great success in mitigating future invasion so in the mid 2000s i guess something like that by nationally in Canada, the U S there was, and, and overseas, the, the other direction, there was this, uh, effect put in, or this work put in to stop, uh, ballast water discharge in freshwater systems. So ships would discharge their water out in the ocean, switch it out for ocean water if they needed ballast and then return and continue on into port. And apparently it's been incredibly effective. Like the best example of, uh, uh, mitigation of like biological activity that has been measured according to this study that came out by uh, Tony Ricciardi and uh, Hugh McIsaac just a few days ago. So really interesting to think of the fact that 
we're always looking for these, this is what brought it to mind, these environmental successes. And this is an unequivocal one of those related to invasive species. So thought I'd put that in there before I forgot. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. Because, um, you know, the success stories are often get overlooked, but that, you know, has the hallmarks of one that was in many ways, quote unquote, easy to address. It's like, if there's mm -hmm. one particular industry at fault, and it's like international shipping, um, and it's highly regulated, so add a couple of extra regulations and um, the monitoring aspects. I I don't know anything. I'm talking. I'm well out of my line here, but I'm assuming that it's fairly easy when you're coming into port and some sort of level of inspections of being able to do a quick check of the ballast water to go. Did you in fact uh, is that fresh water or salt water inside those ballast tanks? Shouldn't be a very yeah. complicated test. Um, and I think a pretty easy one too, when you get down to it, you know, yeah, just, just stick a, a minor uh, change in procedure. Yeah. And just take, uh, can, you know, basically measure the conductivity of the ballast water and it's like, yes, pass, no, no fail. And, um, the actual act, I guess, of pumping it out in the ocean and pumping back in doesn't seem particularly, uh, arduous but again i don't know anything about shit no, yeah i probably not uh, assuming you're under good weather or something like that i'm sure there are ex exceptions to those good things but anyway uh, uh, a great example of that uh and and a huge vector for a lot of animal uh invasive species into the freshwater in the time leading up to that the 70s 80s uh etc some of the ones that we'll continue talking about during the episode because being freshwater and, and having such a remarkable impact to the ecosystems of, of lakes in this area. Yep. And I guess uh, one last kind of point to kick on before we switch to the next segment is our focus is on animals in general because they're more charismatic and easier to understand in many ways, but there are lots of invasive plants um, and um, Canadian pondweed or Canadian waterweed is a problematic invasive in the UK, for example. So basically transporting the other way. Uh, starry stonewort would be another example of an invasive macrophyte. And so, yeah. Macroalga technically, but it's yeah. technically an alga. It's a, okay. it's a caryophyte. It's a macroalga. But yeah. Uh, but yeah it behaves like one yeah. and and there are others here eurasian water milfoil those kind of things yeah. all of them are in lake scugog so i know that <laughs> <laughs> effectively every invasive species is in lake scugog um being part of the trans Severn. yeah um but yeah the usual focus is on big charismatic things uh where they can either the organisms can be easily seen or the impacts can be directly visible but uh, as we'll get into in a few minutes, uh, the organisms don't need to be large to have dramatic ecosystem level impacts. Okay, so invasive species, it's all very interesting, but where do lake sediments fit into all of this? This is the paleolimnology podcast after all. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and and I, I guess, you know, you, you can you can find the way in which paleo fits in in a number of different aspects, right? Because what is paleolimnology but this set of methods for reconstructing past environments? So it probably depends uh, on the nature of the invasive species. Uh, it may be directly monitoring though that could be rare. There are examples of that. We talked about bithotrephes and the spines were uh, 
preserving in the sediments and, and maybe not being used in the same cladocera samples, but you can try and find them. But also you can indirectly infer those and think about how the invasive species has altered the environment, whether it be the aquatic primarily, but maybe the terrestrial, uh, as a way of inferring the presence and then impact of that species. Yeah. And so just like Bithotrephes, for example, is a predatory clodosaurin. So there's several key um, analyses from the Muskoka area showing how when Bithotrephes moves into a lake, um, there is a, I guess, catastrophic effect on the large Daphnia. They basically just get mowed down in short order and effectively eliminated from the lake. And so you may not necessarily see in your Clodosserin sample very much in the way of direct remains of Bithotrephes, but um, you can infer uh, the, uh, the effects of Bithotrephes from the changes to the broader Clodosserin community. Or maybe the size changes? I don't know. Are there any? Yeah, it's like the, there's a shift from like larger Daphnia to smaller right. Daphnia. Or I just meant even within species, like there's a little bit of measuring of sizes of, of the cladocerans and their individuals. I don't know if that's ever been, I'm sure they've been thought of. I'd have to ask Jenny. But, uh, but a good example of a food web connection there uh, and... As, as a way of overcoming the fact that there aren't that many, they're not going to be that many direct remains of this species. Just in the same way, you may be lucky enough to find fragments of zebra mussel shells in your sediment. If you're in a, a lake that has lots of zebra mussels, you probably will find such things. But those aren't going to be as, well, one, they're not really telling you about the effect. And, and presence is important. It's interesting to know when that invader entered the system. But really, what it's doing to the environment is, is probably the more important and more interesting thing to try and get at with the, the record that you have. Yeah. And um, so with zebra mussels, for those that are not familiar with them, they are a uh, type of mollusk and they're super efficient filter feeders. Um, when they were brought over to North America in the late 70s, early 1980s, I think is when the, um, they would have arrived and they caused a, had a lot of media attention off, off the bat, um, just in, in relation to uh, the direct costs. Um, they basically multiplied and grew over all sorts of infrastructure requiring it to be maintained and cleaned in new ways. Uh, the shells would be a nuisance in terms of making beaches much less pleasant because you have all these shell fragments washing up and basically, you know, what where people would like have historically been using the beach for years and years. All of a sudden you couldn't walk through the sand barefoot without cutting your feet. Um, they're, they're horrible. And I've had my gloves ripped apart by them diving. Oh, really? Like they just eat and they just cut neoprene like like razors they're okay. crazy okay um and they and then on an ecological level they outcompete and just literally grow over many native species and uh, um just smother them um and so this led to a lot of interest in what they were what the broader impacts and what how they could be controlled in various ways um and but shockingly the impact that they had on some of these lakes in terms of water clarity 
is like ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So there's um, a huge increase in water clarity documented in Lake Erie, which is the smallest of the Great Lakes, where um, water transparency increased from six inches to three feet due to the uh, increasing population of zebra mussels just massively filtering this huge body of water. And this was going through the time of coming out of the 70s. You had eutrophication of the lake in many ways. So in some ways, this is viewed as a, could be viewed as a positive change. It's like. With some positives. You know, yeah. some yeah. biological engineering going on in terms of dealing with the large amounts of nutrients being pumped into the lake and huge amounts of algal growth. And so I guess you would have had at some point some push-pull going on because at the same time you'd have increasing regulation of the um, amount of nutrients going into the lake. So I'm not sure if that six inches to three feet number um, controls for that. Yeah. Or if Mm -hmm. that is the component of it that is attributed to zebra mussels. I'd have to go back and reread where the, uh, the, the, the statement came from. But right. regardless, yeah, whether it's accumulative or not, yeah, yeah. Um, the that sort of you know sex tuppling of water transparency depth uh, in a lake the size of Lake Erie is just uh, is shocking. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I know that's like one of those. Uh, there's lots of crazy statistics around zebra mussels in particular, invasives more generally. But that's got to be right up there with with changes on on very shorter i don't know what the the duration of that is if it's from the worst it ever was to the best it ever was but at the most even if it was from when they were first introduced to today you're talking about 50 years or or less and i'm sure it was much faster than that so that's a a massive change uh based on a tiny little thing you know people aren't familiar with them they're not much bigger than your thumb nail really like the lower bone phalanges of your thumb and uh but just the the shows the number of them if each muscle can filter what is it like a liter a day is the kind of number that's thrown around to filter the the volume of lake erie of all of its nutrients on a regular basis to compete with all the water coming down the St. Clair River from the upper Great Lakes, all of the water coming in from Windsor and Toledo, Ohio, and all of all of these places that have huge water quality issues. It's unfathomable almost. Yeah. And with a huge amount of knock and environmental effects, because that then in turn, um, you know, huge increase in water clarity allowed increases in the populations of various uh, fish within the lake that have been impacted by how um, murky it become. There are elements of filtering out the pollutants um, that were entering the lake as well. And, um, you know, so on one level, although paleolimnology is not well suited to tracking zebra mussel populations within the lake in terms of shell fragments showing up under the microscope, it is very well suited to track the kind of ecological nutrient type uh, nutrient changes within the ecosystem that was induced by the invasion. And there's a lot of analysis of that nature. 
For sure. Uh, using all of those kind of classic paleo techniques related to nutrients that we've talked about for a couple of years now on this thing. Uh, diatoms, uh, biogenic silica, uh, reconstructions of isotopes, all of them individually and in these large synthesis kind of analyses on on all of the different lake systems that have been invaded, not every one individually, but in the the Laurentian Great Lake systems, well, where they are, where there are zebra mussels, like Ontario, Lake Erie, in smaller environments, uh, showing the the change in in more smaller limnological settings. So yeah, paleo really fits very nicely in in using those classic techniques. Yeah, and we ourselves have had lab mates that worked on this, these kind of analyses in like Lake Simcoe, for example, in Ontario specifically looking at the impacts of uh, zebra mussels within a multi multiple stressor context. Um, and then another element where paleo comes in, and we've kind of talked about this before, um, would be looking at the impacts of fish stockings, which would be an introduce and fish introductions and the whole concept that would have, I don't think it happens on any real scale anymore, but the idea of, eliminating the natural fish within a lake with something like rotenone on purpose in order to stock it with uh, sport fish. Um, and sometimes these introductions fail. And so then you, we've talked before about like waves that are showing up in like the Clodocera or some other um, lower uh, trophic level um, and being able to track those changes through time. And so these kind of invasions slash introductions can be all, can also be analyzed in a paleo context. Yeah, more localized invasions for sure, um, but but no less biologically detrimental. I don't think at a sort of um, organized level that that's being done a lot. But bait bucket introductions are are a real problem still. People just dump their bait buckets into the lake when they're done with them. Uh, moving species individually if like people want to have bass in their lake so they you know move them up there uh, or uh, a huge concern is the aquarium uh, industry and not the industry itself but people who dump uh, aquarium individuals organisms into natural water so you, the the goldfish is just becoming too much work and you you put it into the lake as opposed to dealing with it in a, a more appropriate uh, manner is, is a way that that, that is uh, very much happening and, and continues to happen. And um, my understanding is that is why how Asian carp was, uh, was introduced as well. It's like not considered a sport fish in North America, but it is in other parts of the world. And it would have been basically just people acting on their own. It's like, oh, this, you know, I really enjoy catching carp when I was a kid and Let's get some carp going in this lake too, uh, where my cottage is. What's the worst that could what happen? What is the worst could happen? And uh, next thing you know, it is a continental level problem. Uh, that that is, uh, I, I can't imagine what the U.S. EPA Department of Engineers or uh, Army Corps of Engineers pays uh, in a given year to to try and control just one invasive species, let alone all of them. Uh, yeah, the consequences can be much broader than uh, than originally considered because you know the 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 not power of the 
capabilities of some of these taxa uh, when released from all of the things that controlled them before is is pretty impressive and one of those things where you know um you don't know until after the fact it's not like you can do a test invasion it's like nah let's let's not do that let's not do that <laughs> yeah exactly uh, i don't know how good our simulations are to uh to play those out <laughs> let's roll that one back yeah, for sure. It does bring in the idea of, of how you control one of those things, because as we said, we don't, most people aren't intentionally introducing species, but there can be argument, at least, that to remove some of these invasive species or to keep them under control, you should introduce a, a form of biological control and bring a organism that is um, a predator uh, on that invader into the environment in order to try and give it some of that biological control back um and there have been examples of that being certainly thought about uh, introduced in small numbers i think there are examples where it's been done uh but but that is definitely opening <laughs> a uh, a kettle of of uh of potential problems moving forward that that need to be thought of and so just you know wrapping up the episode with just like a couple of just more kind of rambling thoughts in terms of less prepared kind of discussion issues. Um, a couple really come to mind. One is it's common to think of it as a un as we mentioned in the introduction as a unidirectional problem, but really it's a global problem with species being transferred back and forth all over the place. And there's one part of me that goes, you know, is there some level of inevitability to all this due to human, um, just transport um, and a lot of it a lot of these are noticed after the fact so that you know you can have best practices to kind of mitigate the invasions but there's some element of mitigation is just a form of delay in in some ways and is it really eventually just going to be a free-for-all so you can have all the northern temperate species from Canada and Russia battling it out in in uh, Canada and we'll see who emerges and then the same species, the opposite species being transported back into Russia and there'll be just some sort of general homogenization of, you know, the Royal Rumble. Yeah, that's a, that's a reasonable question that lots of people ask whether biological homogenization is just an inevitable factor of the connected world that we live in and, and in some ways we already kind of identify that like if you look at the broadest sense the biogeographic realms uh, of the planet the whole arctic is one so it's the entirety of the northern hemisphere right around the poles uh, related to potential historic connectivity right so it depends how far you go back of course we consider them natural species but organisms that cross the bearing land bridge and came to north america or went the other direction or moved both directions um have have homogenized taxa over long time scales and is this just a a snapshot that we're looking at in in the process definitely something to consider now uh th that might be the case but the the loss the economic loss that would accompany that and just how different our environment would look would be pretty significant so the question of of whether we should try and minimize that as much as possible uh and not just not that our footprint on this planet isn't already as big as it could possibly be but make it a little bit lower in that sense is, is something 
to consider. Yeah. But it just is an interesting thought of like, where is the line? Like at what point could we, you know, an argument made it in like the Galapagos, keep those finches out of here. Those are from other islands. <laughs> yeah, right. But those that weren't brought by humans as opposed to, um, uh, you know, the, the, the rats and the goats and the other taxa that, that, uh, well, when we were on the Galapagos, we took our honeymoon there and, uh, on the islands, like there's just rat poison everywhere, like just to wipe out any rats that come out. They, they've been pretty successful in small locations at doing that, getting rid of the rats and the cats and the goats and those things. So that there has been some resurgence in tortoise populations and some of those other taxa. Um, so I think that's an easy one, but, but just for others, um, insects, things like that, that, that it's a, a, a really challenging thing around here. The emerald ash borer is something that's been going on for years and it's really, really expanded out of the initial area that it, uh, invaded. And, um, yeah. So, so where do you draw the line is a, a good question. Another one in terms of lines and where is the line is the whole idea of evidence of absence versus absence of evidence and some element of, and there are, you know, a couple of one, more, I guess, apparent examples of where something is initially labeled as invasive, um, but then after some more detailed study, realize it's not that it invaded. It was always there just in incredibly low numbers. And it was not that it was transported. It's that conditions changed, allowing its population to explode. I think these are really cool examples of, uh, of well, just biology and the nature of biology. But but where paleo kind of comes into some of these too, uh, really cool. And some based on work that, of people we know. Yeah. And so um, we can do a link in the eventual show post, but we've got a paper um, that has, it is titled Evidence of Absence versus Absence of Evidence. And it was uh, Jessica Harishan doing some work on Lake Simcoe like 10 years ago. Um, but basically, uh, you know, in a paleolimnological sense, identified what had been previously thought of as a invasive diatom um, in sediment cores or sediment intervals dated to 150, 200 years ago, plus something like that. And just highlighting that, no, it is not a recent invader. And so I guess theoretically, maybe it could have invaded a couple hundred years ago, but pushed the clock back in terms of the earliest known occurrence of it within this region of North America. Yeah. Great example. Uh, and, and in order to do that is, is not, it's not as straightforward as you might think. You'd have to be really, really clear and certain, reasonably certain at least, that it's not a methodological thing, that it is a, a real signal, and it's not something that was, for example, from the top of the core that was dragged down into lower sediments, that the identification is accurate. I know they went to a ton of work looking at uh, scanning electron microscope, uh, uh, samples in order to confirm that they were looking at the same taxon, this Stephanodiscus uh, species of diatom. Uh, so there's a lot that goes into that. It's not as simple as, oh, we found it. That refutes everything we know. The uh, There's a 
need to kind of push back against the orthodox opinion on the invasion of that species uh, if you're going to say these kind of things so uh those we don't know a lot of examples like that there aren't tons of them but there really are interesting uses of paleo and then re-understandings of of what we think about the the taxa around us that we think we know something about yeah yeah and our just our understanding of the local ecology that changes when you have something that was always there but just in like trace 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 amounts and now all of a sudden it's uh much greater and you know in relation to climate warming or some nutrient conditions or who knows what else but uh yeah um reevaluate our understanding of what is actually going on in these environments and i guess the final point in this kind of like idea is that this is really a realm where edna um or environmental dna has a potential to really change the game at some point down the road huge yeah huge the ability to not need to find fossils of organisms. Um, I mean, there's DNA everywhere. Uh, and as we get better at recognizing it in old sediments, it'll be much easier to pinpoint the date of invasion for some of these taxa that were there in very small numbers because it can be so sensitive um, in terms of what you can pick up with these techniques. So zebra mussels, you know, we know approximately when they invaded x lake um, based on its location based on changes we can infer some of the things but those more large-scale inferred changes based on diatoms or productivity were occurring when when things started to really get going uh, but they may have been there for a while kind of smoldering uh, under the radar before that and in other areas maybe they were never invasive at all this is other taxa i mean like that uh, stephanodiscus species which preserves so that works well but what about all the others that don't dna is is the, the game changer there yeah and uh i i i have been only like very slightly slightly adjacent to some edna work like i don't know very much about it other than it is very complex and there's a huge amount of filtering out the noise um and boosting the signal and, and the big problems but i think this is one of those things where over time as the various libraries are built um like it seems far away from being put to this sort of invasion detection application yet but i think one one day i think the writing is on the wall that yes there will be a lot of useful information in this realm coming from that field of study for sure yeah we gotta do an edna episode at some point it's not something we've talked that much about no but put it in the list oh, for man. the small picture 3.0 2.0 2 whatever it is yeah, i have to do a lot of reading for that one <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to, though. I think it's interesting. So it'd be a good excuse to uh, get in that into it. All right. But I think that's a good good place to wrap her up. Agreed. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, there's some interesting uh, discussion points and thoughts there for that, um, that, may, that you may want to pursue further on your own time. But for now, uh, thanks again for listening to Core Ideas, a podcast dedicated to all things paleoalumnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, uh, just send us an email to coreideaspodcast, one word, at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter and we'll probably respond within a few days. Uh, we did have a, a tweet come in that, that we missed, um, <laughs> but we try. And we always talk once a week and we always, you know, 
open up the Twitter on that case. So it'll never sit more than a week. Uh, I think that's how Twitter works, right? <laughs> never say no. Uh, anyway, you can right. You can find us there at Core Ideas Paleo, and there's only one A in Paleo. Uh, all of our past episodes and many of the corresponding show notes uh, can be found on our website at coreideas.hsiorski.ca. Uh, you can find a link to it on our Twitter bio. And uh, the website is back up. <laughs> I know. Yes. Many people would have been frustrated by a 404 or a messed up looking page. Um, but we've been working furiously behind the scenes to... Uh, Get it back up for all of our dedicated fans that go there for all their paleo-limnological needs. And now that it's, now that Adam, I did none of those things, but now that Adam has uh, brought it back to life, he's continuing on with those show notes and, and has put a, a number together in the last little bit. So check out some new stuff there. Uh, and if you are so inclined while you're listening, Give us a rating, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get those podcasts. Those five-star ratings would be great. But to be honest, we don't really care all that much because we're just doing this for fun. And that's it for now. So join us again next time as we continue to explore paleo-limnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy.